Vatican Viewpoint, the church in the world seen from Rome. A podcast produced by Vatican Radio. I'm your host, Devin Watkins. Courage, love, and some forgiveness, <laughs> and the rest will be good. Dr. Mona Esmilzade there. Well, she probably says it better herself. Mona Esmailzade, I will have to spell it for you. <laughs> Dr. Mona, for short, is our special guest on Vatican Viewpoint, and we're doing things a little differently this time around. She received a personal invitation to meet Pope Francis this week, and we're going to find out why. I'm a medical doctor and neuroscientist by background, and today I'm the chairman of a family company in Sweden, where we have around 100 companies. Andros. Dr. Mona also appears frequently on Swedish TV to present her show, which covers the gambit of science, technology, and the future of health. Oh, and as side gigs, she even flies airplanes and has sung with the great Italian tenor Luciano Pavarotti. But what really grabbed the Pope's attention was the story of her childhood, when at the age of three, her family fled their homeland of Iran in search of safety. Here's our conversation. not Swedish, as you can see. (laughs) I was um, born in Iran, basically straight into the revolution. And my parents were politically active. They were fighting for democracy and freedom. And therefore, basically, since my birth, we lived secretively for a few years. And, you know, it was a very turbulent time. A lot of our friends got arrested and tortured and executed and we were lucky to to survive actually and what year were you born so i was born 1980 so right after the revolution right after the revolution after a while we just had to find a way to to get out of the country so we had a very kind of dramatic journey over the mountains Tell me about it. What to happened? turkey yeah i was 3 years old and it started in november <laughs> so we started and it was snowstorm minus 25 30 degrees celsius very cold in those mountains and one night i so i'm sitting on a horse together with my mother who is trying to keep me warm you know just by by her breath like this it's like midnight or around one o'clock and it's very dark and very cold and this horse slides so basically my mother, you know, I, I just fall down, I slide down and uh, she cannot find me. And it's dark and she doesn't want my brothers and my father to, you know, we, we had to be very quiet. And so it takes her a very long time to find me. And she, in the end, she finds, she feels my hair, you know, through her fingers and pulls me up. And then she can see that I'm not breathing and I have no pulse, so I have no heartbeat. Hypothermia. Exactly. So they take me to this village close by. So at first she tries to keep it quiet and not tell my brothers, but at the end my brother feels that there's something wrong and he sees it and he comes and starts beating me and yelling and he says, come and take us, and he gets desperate. But You're still in Iran Yeah, we're on the borders. It's a Kurdish area, Mm -hmm. very poor people. We come to this village where... This 
Kurdish women, I'm sure they were all illiterate, but they had the knowledge of how to, they put me in a tub filled with cold tempered water and slowly warming me up and bringing me back to life. So, you know, my, my body had turned bluish. I I was having no signs of, of being alive and they actually managed to. So for my parents and my brothers, they start crying and shouting and thanking God for, for this miracle, basically. And and they don't even understand how this could happen because I was dead and then I was alive. And then um, you mentioned hypothermia because it was actually when I became a doctor, when I was studying to become a doctor, that suddenly, because I've always heard about this story and everybody swears that this is exactly how it was and and I couldn't really get my head around it. What do you mean if I was dead? How could I be alive then and of course today you can google hypothermia and understand the scientific mechanisms behind that and suddenly as a, you know i was um, studying medicine i was like aha kind of cryotherapy so, in a way i mean you're frozen and then you're i'm frozen exactly back. today you know as a doctor if if you get in the emergency a person who is having hypothermia you're not allowed to actually declare them dead because you have to get them up to a certain temperature but anyway this was really like as a miracle for my family and so we we were lucky to be among the few people who actually survived that journey and we came to Sweden we first we came to Turkey and then so we had no papers and we came to Sweden and we got asylum there because we had a very clear case of being on the death list of the mullahs how many were in the group whenever you departed it was my family and there was one more man who got insane during the trip. He, he started shouting and beating. And, you know, it's a very, you're under a lot of pressure, so to speak. And it was a tough journey because, you know, there are a lot of different smugglers you need to go through. And sometimes they promise you something and they take you halfways. And then, so it, it was a tough, tough journey. Like, I don't even, we don't talk much about it in my family anyway still after so many years we actually don't because i don't even want to know from my mother's perspective for example you know what she felt what she went through or i just know she has told me that at some point she was so exhausted and she was so she was just praying to god and saying that please god just let me have strength to continue carrying her because she was just pulling me on ice, basically, because she, she didn't have the power anymore, you know. Or, for example, my brother, who was eight at the time, he, at some point, you know, his legs have turned bluish and he's, like, so frozen. And he says to my father, he says, Dad, I can really not take another step. And my father which is quite, it's very much characteristic for my father's character. He says, you know, son, it might be very tough right now, but if we survive, you will look back and be proud of yourself. But we have no choice. You have to walk. And this is an eight-year-old who really has to. And of course, when we came to Sweden, I, I would say I was quite traumatized. Normally, I was a very talkative person. In Persian, but not in, in Persian, <laughs> not in Swedish. But after all this, I got muted. I didn't speak much. And I was, when the curtains moved, I thought that now they're coming to take us. So I, or when I heard 
motorbikes, for example. And I still get the chills if I hear motorbike because that's what the revolutionary guards were coming on, you know, when they were searching for houses. Or I think it was a quite a turbulent time, but at the same time, when we came to Sweden, a lot of people think that, oh, it's so difficult to come as a refugee to a new country and all that. But I think that you also often miss the kind of... I mean, we felt an enormous freedom. And I saw a playground for the first time in my life because I had basically not been outdoors. You know, we were hiding from house to house. Like normal people who we didn't even know, strangers who opened their houses just to give us some safety for the night. So that was my life, you know, and then suddenly to be able to go to a playground. I mean, it's it's like coming to paradise for a kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think, um, and I think it takes a while to understand that, okay, here we are not persecuted. You know, we are, no one is going to come and take and kill my family and, and so on. But But it didn't actually end there because my family were politically active. And so they didn't think that we would come to Sweden to live there. They thought maximum a year and then we're back. And even becoming a teenager, I have experienced more than a dozen close to death experiences. That that continued on. (laughs) That continued because we were under, we were threatened Mm -hmm. by the Iranian regime. Also in Sweden, they planned everything from having a spy next door who the Swedish secret police discovered and he he was going to blow us up and all all sorts of things that we actually survived and i i don't know really why i have always been thinking that you know i'm i'm living i overlive i have some extra time that i wasn't supposed to have and uh, i think the feeling that you got a second chance to live also gives you I don't know, everything from feelings of guilt to uh, some sort of responsibility. You're listening to Vatican Viewpoint. This week we're talking to Dr. Muna Esmelzadeh. We've heard her story. Now let's hear what she has done with her unique experience and how she came to meet Pope Francis. I mean, we were lucky to survive and come to Sweden to a free country where they respect human rights. And a lot of people, a lot of our friends, they didn't. So you had a second lease on life and you have to make something of it. Yes, and, and, I, think, and I think it takes different expressions. For example, I mean, my our parents were revolutionaries. They were idealists and they wanted to changed the world for the better and I I think as a child I had a dream to to become a revolutionary (laughs) but in my case it ended up I I became a medical doctor a neuroscientist and then I tried to through you know knowledge and science and technology you know try to change the world to the better and today we work a lot with doing that through entrepreneurship Um, but I think that it is more the concept of that you feel that nothing is really enough. Like you feel that there is always more to do. And especially, and I don't even know if this is good or bad, but I, you know, I think I got this with breast milk, basically, that unless you do something that affects something for others, it's really nothing. Kind of giving life. Or just doing something that will have a positive impact on people around you, on the world, on humanity. I don't know. 
sometimes it can feel a little bit it's some sort of you know megalomania you think you are going to do something big for this world and at the same time you know we all know we are not more than flies really i mean we you know in, as uh, individuals but in christianity we call it the messianic complex where we have to be the messiah where we we seek right. to make things better whenever there's really a power greater and than us it is a blessing in a way to have that it can also be a curse oh, sure. if you don't if you don't canalize it correctly. St. Ignatius of Loyola always said, pray as if only God did anything, but act and work as if it all depended on you. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. So what brings you to the Vatican then? This brings us to the present Yes, so (laughs) this is actually a very, uh, how can I say, I'm almost touched by how it happened because, so I was interviewed by a Swedish journalist And it's a couple, the woman, she's a journalist and her husband is a photographer. And I was uh, interviewed and, well, they heard about my story. And through the photographer, who also was a friend with a Catholic priest, he mentioned me to this priest and the priest said that, ah, I, I have read about her and her brother because in Sweden I have for many years been um, talking about science and stuff like that on the morning TV and explaining Nobel Prizes and things like that. And my brother has been uh, very known for being a, a successful professor and entrepreneur and so on. So he had read this story somehow and he said, why don't you make us meet? And so we met for lunch and had the most joyful <laughs> lunch. And after that, he sent me a message saying that This was an amazing launch. I feel so inspired and I'm going to the Pope next week and I want to, would like to mention you and your story for His Holiness. Would that be okay for you? And and I thought, yes, of course it would be. It would be an honor. And And so a week later, he sends me a photo of him and Holy Father and saying that he would love to meet you and let's arrange it. So what did you talk to Pope Francis about? I think that at first I felt there is so many things I would like on a personal level to talk to him about. But then I felt that what is most important right now at this time is actually what is happening in my country. And as you know, there has been, um, it's an ongoing revolution basically, where you have one of the world's worst dictatorships, killing children, women, men, young, old people for just, you know, wanting their basic rights. And installing cameras to detect whether women have their hijab on. Exactly. That's the least they do. I mean, on all personal, political, all levels, they also, when it comes to your opinions and beliefs, because I think... This whole thing, you know, the sparkle came from this girl who was beaten to death because she didn't have wear uh, her veil properly, according to their rules. But this goes much deeper. I mean, people want to have the right to the freedom of speech, the freedom of having your own uh, thoughts, your religion, your beliefs. 
And I mean, my own father was tortured only because he, because of his beliefs, you know, he was not a criminal. He was just wanting to have a democratic and free society. I think that, you know, the crimes against humanity that this regime has been dealing with for more than four decades, really. But now I think that you have a young population coming up that their bravery is just beyond anything that I have seen. And, and you know, remember, I'm, I'm born into a political family in a way. I've, I've seen a lot of that. But this generation, I think, has something new in them. I think they have some courage that no other has had as, you know, in this massive group of people. Are you hopeful for some kind of change? Definitely. And I think it's just a matter of time. You know, in Iran, it's not only about, I'm sure you know, they have, the Iranian regime have been killing Christian bishops. You're not allowed to even have any kind of other religion, but you're not even allowed to be just a normal Muslim because, you know, as long as you don't obey their very fundamentalistic rules, you can pay it with your life. And so, um, and yes, I believe that no tyranny can last forever. People have awakened really also. So I think I definitely hope for some change and I think it's just a matter of time. And you know, I believe that if there is only one person left, one person who will speak the truth, stand up and be courageous, then there is nothing to worry about. It's just a matter of time. I think that Jesus Christ is a fantastic example of standing up for what is righteous and of course, he had a little group of friends, but really he was quite alone in his time. And then, but look today how it is, you know, a massive movement. So I think courage is basically the only thing courage, love, and some forgiveness, and the rest will be good. Did Pope Francis mention anything to you, or did he encourage you in your work? I think that, you know, he has already shown support for this cause. And for me, it was important to also not ask him for more support, but to really thank him because he is a great authority. But I also think he is as a person, I think that that he can feel and sense the kind of suffering that is ongoing, really. And, And I felt truly encouraged that we are not alone only as an Iranian, but that there are important institutions in the world who actually want a change for the better. And that made me really, really happy. Thank you for joining us here on Vatican Viewpoint. We'll be back again next week.